This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Servile State by Hilaire Belloc. Section 13. As to the first factor, it has changed very rapidly within the memory of men now living. The traditional rights of property are still strong in the minds of the English poor. All the moral connotations of that right are familiar to them. They are familiar with the conception of theft as a wrong. They are tenacious of any scraps of property which they may acquire. They could all explain what is meant by ownership, by legacy, by exchange and by gift, and even by contract. There is not one but could put himself in the position, mentally, of an owner. But the actual experience of ownership, and the effect which that experience has upon character, and upon one's view of the state, is a very different matter. Within the memory of people still living, a sufficient number of Englishmen were owning, as small freeholders, small masters, etc., to give to the institution of property, coupled with freedom, a very vivid effect upon the popular mind. More than this, there was a living tradition proceeding from the lips of men who could still bear living testimony to the relics of a better state of things. I have myself spoken, when I was a boy, to old laborers in the neighborhood of Oxford who had risked their skins in armed protest against the enclosure of certain commons, and who had, of course, suffered imprisonment by a wealthy judge as the reward of their courage. And I have myself spoken in Lancashire to old men who could retrace for me, either from their personal experience, the last phases of small ownership in the textile trade, or from what their fathers had told them, the conditions of time when small and well-divided ownership in cottage looms was actually common. All that has passed. The last chapter of its passage has been singularly rapid. Roughly speaking, it is the generation brought up under the education acts of the last forty years which has grown up definitely and hopelessly proletarian. The present instinct, use, and meaning of property is lost to it, and this has two very powerful effects. Each strongly inclining our modern wage-earners to ignore the old barriers which lay between a condition of servitude and a condition of freedom. The first effect is this, that property is no longer what they seek nor what they think obtainable for themselves. The second effect is that they regard the possessors of property as a class apart, whom they always must ultimately obey, often envy, and sometimes hate, whose moral right to so singular a position most of them must hesitate to concede, and many of them would now strongly deny but whose position they at any rate accept as a known and permanent social fact, the origins of which they have forgotten, and the foundations of which they believe to be immemorial. To sum up, the attitude of the proletariat in England today, the attitude of the overwhelming majority, that is, of English families, towards property and towards that freedom which is alone obtainable through property, is no longer an attitude of experience or of expectation. They think of themselves as wage-earners. To increase the weekly stipend of the wage-earner is an object which they vividly appreciate and pursue. 
to make him cease to be a wage-earner is an object that would seem to them entirely outside the realities of life. What of the second factor, the gambling chance which the capitalist system, with its necessary condition of freedom, and of the legal power to bargain fully and so forth, permits to the proletarian of escaping from his proletariat surroundings? Of this gambling chance, and the effect it has upon men's minds, we may say that, while it has not disappeared, it has very greatly lost in force during the last forty years. One often meets men who tell one, whether they are speaking in defense or against the capitalist system, that it still blinds the proletarian to any common consciousness of class, because the proletarian still has the example before him of members of his class, whom he has known, rising, usually by various forms of villainy, to the position of capitalist. But when one goes down among the working men themselves, one discovers that the hope of such a change in the mind of any individual worker is now exceedingly remote. Millions of men in great groups of industry, notably in the transport industry and in the mines, have quite given up such an expectation. Tiny as the chance ever was, exaggerated as the hopes in a lottery always are, that tiny chance has fallen in the general opinion of the workers to be negligible, and that hope which a lottery breeds is extinguished. The proletarian now regards himself as definitely proletarian, nor destined within human likelihood to be anything but proletarian. These two factors, then, the memory of an older condition of economic freedom, and the effect of a hope individuals might entertain of escaping from the wage-earning class, the two factors which might act most strongly against the accepting of the servile state by that class, have so fallen in value that they offer but little opposition to the third factor in the situation, which is making so strongly for the servile state, and which consists in the necessity all men acutely feel for sufficiency and for security. It is this third factor alone which need be seriously considered today when we ask ourselves how far the material upon which social reform is working, that is, the masses of the people, may be ready to accept the change. The thing may be put in many ways. I will put it in what I believe to be the most conclusive of all. If you were to approach those millions of families now living at a wage, with a proposal for a contract of service for life, guaranteeing them employment at what each regarded at his usual full wage, how many would refuse? Such a contract would, of course, involve a loss of freedom. A life contract of the kind is, to be accurate, no contract at all. It is the negation of contract and the accepting of status. It would lay the man that undertook it under an obligation of forced labor coterminous and coincident with his power to labor. It would be a permanent renunciation of his right, if such a right exists, to the surplus values created by his labor. If we ask ourselves how many men, or rather how many families, would prefer freedom with its accompaniments of certain insecurity and possibly insufficiency, to such a life contract, no one can deny that the answer is very few would refuse it. That is the key to the whole matter. What proportion would refuse it, no one can determine, but I can say that even as a voluntary offer, and not as a compulsory obligation, 
a contract of this sort which would for the future destroy contract and re-erect status of a servile sort would be thought a boon by the mass of the proletariat today now take the truth from another aspect by considering it thus from one point of view and from another we can appreciate it best of what are the mass of men now most afraid in a capitalist state not of the punishments that can be inflicted by a court of law but of the sack you may ask a man why he does not resist such and such a legal infamy why he permits himself to be the victim of fines and deductions from which the truck acts specifically protect him why he cannot assert his opinion in this or that matter why he has accepted without a blow such and such an insult some generations ago a man challenged to tell you why he forswore his manhood in any particular regard would have answered you that it was because he feared punishment at the hands of the law today he will tell you that it is because he fears unemployment private law has for the second time in our long european history overcome public law and the sanctions which the capitalist can call to the aid of his private rule by the action of his private will are stronger than those which the public courts can impose in the seventeenth century a man feared to go to mass lest the judges should punish him today a man fears to speak in favor of some social theory which he holds to be just and true lest his master should punish him to deny the rule of public powers once involved public punishments which most men dreaded though some stood out to deny the rule of private powers involves today a private punishment against the threat of which very few indeed dare to stand out look at the matter from yet another aspect a law is passed let us suppose which increases the total revenue of wage earner or guarantees him against the insecurity of his position in some small degree the administration of that law requires upon the one hand a close inquisition into the man's circumstances by public officials and upon the other hand the administration of its benefits by that particular capitalist or group of capitalists whom the wage earner serves to enrich do the servile conditions attaching to this material benefit prevent a proletarian in england today from preferring the benefit to freedom it is notorious that they do not no matter from what angle you approach the business the truth is always the same that the great mass of wage earners upon which our society now reposes understands as a present good all that will increase even to some small amount their present revenue and all that may guarantee them against those perils of insecurity to which they are perpetually subject they understand and welcome a good of this kind and they are perfectly willing to pay for that good the corresponding price of control and enregimentation exercised in gradually increasing degree by those who are their paymasters it would be easy by substituting superficial for fundamental things or even by proposing certain terms and phrases to be used in the place of terms and phrases now current it would be easy i say by such methods to ridicule or oppose the prime truths which i am here submitting they none the less remain truths substitute for the term employee in one of our new laws the term serf even do so mild a thing as substitute the traditional term master for the word employer and the blunt words might breed revolt 
impose of a sudden the full conditions of a servile state upon modern England, and it would certainly breed revolt. But my point is that when the foundations of the thing have to be laid and the first great steps taken, there is no revolt. On the contrary, there is acquiescence and, for the most part, gratitude upon the part of the poor. After the long terrors imposed upon them through a freedom unaccompanied by property, they see at the expense of losing a mere legal freedom the very real prospect of having enough and not losing it. All forces, then, are making for the servile state in this final phase of our evil capitalist society in England. The generous reformer is canalized towards it. The ungenerous one finds it a very mirror of his ideal. The herd of practical men meet at every stage in its inception the practical steps which they expected and demanded, while that proletarian mass upon whom the experiment is being tried have lost the tradition of property and of freedom which might resist the change, and are most powerfully inclined to its acceptance by the positive benefits which it confers. It may be objected that however true all this may be, no one can, upon such theoretical grounds, regard the servile state as something really approaching us. We need not believe in its advent, we shall be told, until we see the first effects of its action. To this I answer that the first effects of its action are already apparent. The servile state is, in industrial England today, no longer a menace, but some thing in actual existence. It is in process of construction. The first main lines of it are already plotted out. The cornerstone of it is already laid. To see the truth of this, it is enough to consider laws and projects of law, the first of which we already enjoy, while the last will pass from project to positive statute in the due process of time. The End of Section 13